So in my message last week, I had a quote that seemed to resonate for a lot of folks. So we turned it into a graphic and we put it on Facebook and a lot of folks shared it. And it was this. You don't need to defeat doubt. You don't need to be fearless. You just need your curiosity to be a step ahead of your doubt and fear. Now, curiosity in our spiritual tradition is a virtue. It is something that is looked upon positively as something that helps us grow and discover ourselves and this world. However, curiosity is not always considered a virtue in many other religious traditions. Witness on this day after Valentine's Day, Puritan Valentine's cards. You almost make my heart dance and dancing is forbidden. (laughs) By the way, these are all free. You know, it's the day after, so take them, use them. They're all free anyway. You bewitched me. There is no other explanation for the gophers in my garden. (laughs) Keep them coming. I like this one. I thought to write you a love poem for that. I have beaten myself with a rough branch each night. Hence. (laughs) Really no romance, those folks. Roses are red, violets are blue, and neither are useful or necessary at all. And finally, two little kids, this graven image will not wash away the stain of original sin. Now, this is not entirely fair to our Puritan ancestors. In fact, not their theology, but their form of gathering as churches gave us the form of of congregationalism that we as Unitarian Universalists now exist within. So we owe them something, but that's a message for another day. And so this from the humorous website, satirical website, College Humor, gets at a point which is a serious one. This series, Original Blessing, of course, is distinct from another phrase, another phrase that many of us might have been much more familiar with, depending upon how we grew up religiously or spiritually. Original sin, which says, amongst a number of different things, this, the universe is a hostile place. We don't truly belong here. We cannot make a home here. This is expressed in its most extreme forms in a variety of different fundamentalisms, fundamentalisms which tend to be hostile to creativity, to art. They see them as forms of deceit, as forms of detracting from the one Truth, the one truth that will save us all and cannot be changed in any way. What fundamentalism say in a variety of different ways is this, which is that this is not a universe that is curious. This is not a universe in which curiosity has any value. Anything that deviates from that one standard is to be looked upon with suspicion. Now, there are more benign forms of this fundamentalism and there are extremely dangerous forms of this fundamentalism. We all have been so troubled by the video depictions of the murders of captives by ISIS. However, as awful as those are, they're a drop in the bucket compared to the wholesale slaughter. Thousands of people, sexual enslavement of those people as well, the Yazidis, which is an ancient community and tradition in and around Iraq. Actually, I think they're associated with the Kurdish people. What ISIS has done to the Yazidis is the worst of fundamentalism. It sees another people as suspect, as deviating from the truth, and because of that, their very lives are not worthwhile to even be lived. In our country, less toxic 
but still toxic. We saw this past week, Roy Moore, a name that some of you might know, the chief justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, who, when the federal court ruled that marriage equality had come to Alabama, issued an edict that county probate judges should not start issuing licenses to same-sex couples. And what Roy Moore said is that if we start allowing gays and lesbians to marry, then what will keep us from fathers marrying their daughters or someone wanting to marry an animal? You see the way the fundamentalist psyche and worldview operates is that anything that is seen as strange or different is seen as something that is suspect. It's seen as an object to be controlled at best or killed or eliminated at worst. The opposite of this way of living is what this series is about. Original blessing, which says essentially this. From the moment there was creation, there was creativity. The creation is not something long ago and far away fixed and final until we get to the end times and discover what it was all about. No, original blessing says the moment there was creation, there was creativity, and we are bound up in that creation, not separate from it. Issuing forth from this is that although each of us are far from perfect, there is a basic goodness and worthiness that all of us partake of. As we are a part of the creation, we are also its unfolding. And our curiosity, our desire to know, our desire to grow, helps us stay in touch with the heart of what this creation has always been about. At Wellsprings, one of our core beliefs is this. The burning bush is blazing everywhere. It's not a story of long ago and far away. This creativity, this coming to be is right here, right now in the midst of our lives. We just sung a couple songs about it. Everything is holy now. We are full of wonder. We are, in the most profound sense, an expression of life becoming deeply aware of itself. We are not set apart. We are a part of. Some of you might be familiar with Rob Bell's work. A number of years ago, about five, six years ago, this progressive evangelical had a book called Love Wins which was something of a bestseller, at least in terms of how much theology books normally sell. He also started a bit of a controversy. He was accused of within the evangelical community of being something you are not supposed to be. A universalist. This belief that eventually, as he understood his relationship to the Christian tradition and to his God, that eventually all would be reunited with all. Ultimately, we are all invited to the table. If you've read Love Wins, it's fascinating. It's a good book. It's not entirely new, not in any way. And it opens, if you've read it, with the story about his church, fairly progressive evangelical church, having an art show. Again, creativity, creation, new ways to explore, expand upon our understanding of the universe. And there was a picture in someone's art's creation, someone's painting, of Gandhi. And someone in Rob Bell's church had seen written underneath it, pointing to the picture of Gandhi on a yellow post-it note, you do realize he's in hell, don't you? And from that, Rob Bell said, my God, what's going on here? This is not the tradition or the God that I serve. 
And he calls to a broader way. A way most broad and most welcoming to all of us. But as I said, there's really nothing new about Love Wins or Rob Bell. Here are these words. Exactly 100 years ago from 1915. From Clarence Skinner, who was a universalist theologian. We accept the world for the joyous place the world was meant to be. We like the world, despite the fact that so many theologians look upon the world with inherited suspicion. We say it is no longer this, as they say it is, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we say it is the world, the flesh, and God. Modern religion must sanctify the world. The dominant motive is no longer to escape from earthly existence, but to make our earthly existence as abundant and as happy as it can be. That is a universalist charge, to make this world as abundant and as happy as it can be. This creation is creative, and we are creating. This is what it means to sanctify our lives. This is what it means to be curious and to go beyond simply intellectual curiosity, simply desire to know something. The kind of curiosity I'm talking about goes deeper. The kind of curiosity I'm talking about is not this. You might recognize this fellow. The most interesting man in the world. He says, stay thirsty, my friends. Now what he's thirsty for, I'm not thirsty for anymore. But he's got this point about look for the interesting things. Look for the high points. And if you've seen the commercials, the things he's telling us to stay thirsty for are like escaping in the 1960s from the KGB while we're running a mission behind the Iron Curtain or jumping off of a 5,000 foot mountain. This kind of curiosity, however, is all about finding the next new big thing, all about finding the next high. This kind of curiosity is all about excitement without relationship. It's all about connection without closeness. Maybe we know this in our lives. The minute you, I, we, us stop being interesting, I'm out of here. This is a kind of curiosity, but not a universalist curiosity. It is an expression of what the great theologian Kierkegaard called the aesthetic. The aesthetic which searches for intensity in life, but doesn't really want relationship. Best way I know to explain what Kierkegaard is talking about is not even the most interesting man in the world, but this fellow, Groundhog Day. Now I think 22 years old. I preached on it before. It's one of my favorite texts for spiritual understanding and exploration. And this Groundhog, I think we can say we all hate him on a day like today. Because it wasn't just six more weeks. I think maybe the groundhog saw what was coming a day like today and decided to crawl back into the groundhog's hole and just die. (laughs) Phil, the main character, starts out as an esthete. Once he recognizes the day will not change and he can't make any promise, he indulges every single instinct he has. He eats everything he wants. He has sex with whoever he can. He wants experiences. But here's the thing. As these days over and over and over and over again become years, he finds that that way of living 
is not satisfying. And he moves into, after some despair and difficulty, what Kierkegaard called the ethical. He decides the way that he will make progress, that he may be released from this one day over and over and over again, is he decides to do everything right. He decides to save people. This, if you've seen the movie, is articulated most often through wanting to save this old man who's dying. And regardless of what he does, all the different ways he tries to save him, he can't. As good as he is, he cannot control life. He then moves into what Kierkegaard called the religious or the spiritual way of living, which is about curiosity. There's this one scene, if you watch the movie, in which Phil is sitting in a coffee shop. And remember, it's the same thing for him. All the stimulus day after day after day. He's seen it all before. He's done it all before. But this time, in the movie, it's assumed he's done this for 10 years. By the way, in the original script, 10,000 years. 10,000 years with the same thing. Imagine that. But this time he's sitting there in the coffee shop, hearing the same piece of music that he's heard before. But because he perhaps has exhausted all other options, you see him look up with this gaze of appreciation. And what does he learn to do? He goes every day and he learns to play the piano. From his curiosity, he grows. From his curiosity and his paying attention, he finally knows how to live. Now, one of the reasons I love this movie is that, in fact, there's beautiful little embroidery of insight stitched into it. His name is Phil. Obvious name, right? Not really. I now consider Phil to be short for philosophy. Philosophy, as it was taught to me, was abstract and professionalized and made me run almost screaming for the religious studies department where I felt there was some aspect of relevance to actual lived life. But philosophy, the word itself, philosophia, means the love of wisdom. That's what Phil becomes. This is the difference between intellectual curiosity and spiritual curiosity. He just doesn't know things. He knows how to live. In this way, Phil is a model for all of us, especially if we feel, pardon my language, same shit, different day. There's nothing new under the sun. What to pay attention to in my life is just obviously running itself on autopilot. When we feel this way or we feel confronted by what we cannot or don't want to understand because it's foreign or difficult. This is where we can let our love lead our understanding. If our love compels our curiosity, we will be all right with the fact that this universe is a curious place and that we are always encountering things that we do not know about. Our curiosity can call us into compassion and call us into communion and can lead us into a world in which we just have to be one step ahead of our fear and our doubt. In our tradition, curiosity does not kill the cat. 
You know what kills the cat? Not paying attention. Zoning out. Curiosity is the way to actually keep the cat alive. I had a colleague about 20 years ago who's a senior colleague of mine. And she went into her first ministry with a congregation that was known to be challenging. With a congregation that was known to be difficult. And she did her homework before she started. She talked to all the past ministers and she talked to everyone who knew anything about that congregation, the district, and she read all their prints and materials, and she went in with the exact right diagnostics. She knew how she was going to change their governance style. She knew how she was going to change the structure of their board. She knew how she would help them change the rules and their roles. And six months in, she realized this. The people were not listening to her at all. And she said she got her first real lesson in ministry. She said, I understood everything correctly, but I didn't love them first. And this is as old a lesson as 1 Corinthians 13, which perhaps so many of us know is the wedding reading. Love excels all of our knowledge. Because it leads us into the place of deeper understanding. Love can lead the true learning of the heart. It leads us to not overlook the obvious things. Or the things that we say, yeah, we've seen that before. Or we've done that before. It leads us into recognizing the beauty and really seeing the beauty of even a small flower. Catholic priest, a teacher for so many of us in the ways of the depth of spiritual and pastoral counseling, Henri Nouwen said, many years ago, a friend gave me a beautiful photograph of a water lily. I asked him how he had been able to take such a splendid picture. With a smile, he said, well, I had to be very patient and very attentive. It was only after a few hours of compliments that the lily was willing to let me take its picture. Becoming curious is seeing the beauty that is here and not overlooking. This is what universalism is all about. There is a deep ethic of care, of compassion, of transformation here when we recognize that we can befriend our lives And befriend other people's lives. This is what making other people a neighbor and hospitality is all about. This is participating in the original blessing of the friendliness of creation. And in this we are, imagine that. We are the very channels of creation fulfilling its own promise. What a blessed charge. If you feel your life is insignificant, Look at a flower long enough, recognize the beauty there, and be able to convey that to another person, and we will recognize that we are connected. We might also recognize that really meaning the questions we ask. How was your day? What did you learn? How are you? As the wonderful teacher Omid Safi says, I quoted him about six weeks ago. Translating an Arabic reading. 
How is your heart? These are gateways. These are ways to open. If we don't just toss them off meaninglessly. And by the way, if we're really curious about the answer that we get. To really ask another person, how are you? How is your heart? And to know our intention. To be curious enough to want to know the answer they give. This is original blessing. This is opening. Each day. Last week I also told a story from Elizabeth Alexander. Wonderful essay of hers from the New Yorker about love and loss of her husband. The day before he died, he insisted that she go as a writer to a reading of Kabbalistic poetry. Kabbalah, which is the ancient, mystical, beautiful tradition that has absolutely nothing to do with what's peddled by Madonna, by the way. It is a real, true, deep tradition. And she heard these words, which she includes in the essay, and actually express more about why she can stay in touch with her grief and her loss and about why she tells us such a beautiful tale herself. This Kabbalistic poetry, which reads, Windows of worship, windows of beckoning, windows of weeping, windows of joy, windows of bearing, windows of birth. And I saw windows without number and without end. How often do we truly look through an open window at our life in such a way that we are seeing that our souls see as well? And know that this is not any process that ends. And it's not any process that can be perfected. I love that the Tibetan teacher Chogram Trungpa, who is one of the most uh, famous or first well-known Tibetan teachers in the West, had an opportunity to speak with the guy who headed Est. Some of you have done Est or Est-like uh, things, especially back in the 70s. And a lot of people have benefited from it. Don't hear this story as judgment on that process. But he heard a lot of things coming out of S and a lot of people kind of, especially back in the 70s, did S and then maybe migrate over to Tibetan Buddhism because, hey, those things appear kind of exotic and strange and special. And he heard a lot of this kind of language. Ah, I went to S and I got it. <laughs> I'm getting it. And Chogyam Trungpa said this. It isn't it. <laughs> it's not ending. Once we get it, you know what the next thing is? We're going to get something else, and then something else, and then something else. If we see our lives in this way, it is profoundly liberating. Each of us, simply because we're alive, is participating in something limitless and vast and eternal and unending. My small life, your small life. Our small lives are bound up and held by the larger force of this life. Allow that to simply sink in. Allow that to start each day. My life is an expression of this life. Your life is an expression of this life. Imagine how that might form that question. How are you? How is your heart? 
by the way, it also forms what we're doing here today, this quote unquote Sabbath day. No matter how non-traditional our understanding of the Sabbath is here at Wellsprings and within Unitarian Universalism. The Sabbath was designed to be a day in which we set aside some of our time of working and striving and doing. So that simply again we could grow and know that the work of our lives, the work of our hearts is never finished. When we construct our lives to be so busy that we don't have enough space to ask that question and mean it, how are you, how am I? We're actually breaking faith with creation to open up our lives in this way is to know that we can heal. To know that our responsiveness to this life can be a loving curiosity. And that paying attention unlocks so many of the doors that we think might be locked before us. In this way, we can know that in the great dance, we can find our steps. In the great song, we can find our voice. And in the great spirit, we can find our breath. Amen. May you live in a curious blessing. Let's pray together. God of unknowing, of limitlessness and measurelessness, may we be people who pay attention. Recognize all the ways that we might check out or go numb or stop the full flourishing of our souls, which is our very birthright. May we be people who pay attention. Who know in this caring, loving attention that we are connected to everything and everyone who has ever lived. That we are not apart from. We are a part of. May we know this this day. This original belovedness. This original blessing. Amen.